0: Hello, and welcome to Revolutionary Ideas, the monthly Marxist podcast from Socialist Alternative. In this episode, we will be talking about the ideas of Leon Trotsky and their relevance for the 2020s. Long attacked and smeared by Stalinists and capitalists alike, Trotsky's work still provides immense use for a new generation of socialists. But what did he actually stand for? What role did he play in the Russian Revolution? And what was the nature of his fight against Stalin's dictatorship? On today's panel, to discuss this will be Tom Costello and Yara Cliff, both members of Socialist Alternative, and they'll be interviewing Danny Byrne, who's a member of International Socialist Alternative's International Executive. Over to the both of you.
1: Hi, and welcome to episode three of Revolutionary Ideas. This episode, we're going to be discussing the ideas of Leon Trotsky, and whether or not the ideas that he pioneered in many ways, the ideas of Trotskyism, are a solution for the 2020s, for this very stormy decade uh, that we're uh, entering into right now. Here with us, we have Danny Byrne, who is from uh, the International Socialist Alternative, which is the international organization that SA uh, is, is part of, representing 30 countries uh, around the globe with different socialist organizations present in each. So first off, Danny, I know, you know, we'll we'll often kind of hear the name of Trotsky being brought up a lot, you know, as a a well-known historical figure. But I guess what a lot of people will wonder is, you know, who actually was Trotsky and what did he stand for? You know, what did he have to contribute?
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, So, I mean, first of all, I think that there's very few people in history that deserve our attention more than Trotsky does, and I mean he is actually one of the most um, important figures yeah, of the twentieth century, certainly, and of history in general and one of the things about Trotsky is that there's so many different sides to him you know I mean on the one hand you know trotsky 's importance, if you like, you know the first on um, the first part of his life was as a thinker, you know Trotsky was one of the outstanding marxist. Thinkers and writers, and he was someone who didn't just kind of um, regurgitate uh, what Marx had done before him. He was someone who was a real pioneer of Marxist thought and Marxist theory. He taught outside the box. He um, made Marxist theory apply to new situations in new ways. Um, he was one of the most, you know, prolific uh, writers in Marxist history. Um, but you know, like all kind of you know, real, genuine Marxist uh, writers and thinkers. He wasn't just like an intellectual, as you would not as you would say today. Um, All, you know, significant and all real. Marxist thinkers, they apply, they combine that with real, with with fighting, you know? Um, So Trotsky wasn't just a thinker or a writer. He was also someone who strove throughout his life to build um, a movement, to build a revolutionary movement. And he actually became... A mass leader Um he became you know the leader of millions he became you know one of the central leaders one of the two central leaders of the russian revolution you know the most significant event in the whole of the 20th century Um he was you know unfortunately maybe we haven't had the the privilege of listening to him but he is he's gone down in history as one of the most powerful public speakers um and if that wasn't enough he was also a military leader. He became a very important military leader. Um, he was the person who presided over what was probably the most important military achievement uh, in history, which was an army to build an army of peasants, of workers that managed to defeat 21 different imperialist armies, uh, as well as the the forces of tsarism within Russia, and win. So, I mean, there's many sides to Trotsky, and that that i've just talked about that is just the first part of trotsky's life in many ways you know the more significant um was still to come
3: i think that's really interesting but also because of his like you know really main role in the russian revolution i think it's really interesting to think about the end of his life as well and uh, the fact that he was assassinated by the soviet regime basically um can you tell us a little bit about that
2: yeah so in many ways, like I say, all these achievements, um, you know, the more significant part or the most important part of Trotsky's life came afterwards, because, I mean, Trotsky, like I said, he led the Russian Revolution. I mean, this was the most democratic event in the whole of human history, and it gave birth to the most democratic state in the whole of human history, the state that arose from the, the Socialist Revolution in Russia, and he was a key architect of that. but Unfortunately, I mean, that phase of the Russian Revolution, if you like the healthy democratic phase of the Russian Revolution, unfortunately only lasted a short time, only lasted a period of years. Within seven, eight years of the event in 1917, um, what we call Stalinism, which was you know a, bu- a brutal counter-revolution, a bureaucratic, anti-democratic counter-revolution within the Soviet Union had taken hold. Um, so for the whole you know, rest of Trotsky's life, if you like, in many ways, the most important part of his life, he waged and he led an absolutely principled and absolutely heroic struggle against this, against Stalinism in Russia um, within the communist movement, the revolutionary movement within Russia, which led him you know, to be expelled from that movement, led him to be expelled from Russia, to be exiled from one country to another. To have you know, members of his family hunted down, assassinated, tortured, and then ultimately, like you said, to be assassinated himself 80 years ago today. And so, in that sense, the contribution that Trotsky made—not just to you know uh, creating the only ever successful socialist revolution, but then to maintaining the genuine ideas of that revolution at a time when you know Stalinism had taken hold—that is, you know, in a sense, the most important thing that he's ever done, and that's ensured. That's what's ensured that today, despite the disaster and the failure of of Stalinism and the mud, the muddying of socialist ideas that that's created, um, that's ensured that today there is still a continuity of what were the genuine ideas of the Russian Revolution, uh, which offer hope to workers and to young people and to oppressed people all around the world fighting for socialism today. So, I mean, that's in many ways just the most important aspect of trotsky's life and contribution
3: i think that's a really really important point and i also think it's it's very interesting because i think in this day and age and maybe the west it's very like common to hear people say that the soviet union wasn't democratic it was authoritarian it was even fascist some people would say and I was wondering if you can explain it a little bit very briefly why Trotsky's interpretation of Marxism was so democratic and what, what about it was democratic?
2: Yeah so I mean the whole point of if you like socialism is that it's the first type of society that's ever existed in history in which the majority of people are really in control. When I say in control I don't mean voting in an election every five years or, or every six years. I mean in control of the daily functioning of the economy, society, and the state. um so, the, the the democracy that existed in the Russian Revolution was an extremely intense democracy. It was an extremely wide-ranging democracy. It was an extremely direct democracy, and it was based on the Soviets. Yeah, which are, you know the, this word Soviet has become synonymous with brutal dictatorship. But actually, the word what the word Soviet means is council. It's like you know a, a council of workers, a committee of workers, organised in a neighbourhood or in a factory or in a workplace, and those Soviets were the basic building block of the state that came into being after the Russian Revolution. So they were the you know the basic democratic unit, yeah, instead of you know a parliament which is elected every five years, in which rich people betray poor people, um. The Soviet was an organ through which every worker, you know, every housewife, as they were at the time, every you know, young person, oppressed person, could have a direct and regular involvement in the affairs of, in the, in the, affairs of the state. So that, you know, there's never been anything more democratic than that. Yeah, I think um,
1: those are some really good points that have uh, come out in the discussion so far. And another thing that I've noticed about all of this as well is how Trotsky is very well known for you know his opposition to Stalinism, he's very well known for being the one who had the uh, you know the the assassination with uh, the ice pick or the ice axe uh, in Mexico in in the early forties. And I think like one thing that strikes me about it is how a lot of people who will you know reject Stalinism will think, oh well, Stalinism is just kind of something inevitable. You know, Marxism leads to Stalinism. The Russian Revolution was always going to lead to Stalinism. And one big idea that um, Trotsky always put forward, well, in his own words, he said there is a river of blood that separates Marxism and Stalinism. They're they're not something that flow downstream. And it's actually sort of incumbent on us uh, as Marxists to continue to defend Marxist ideas and, and to point out how Stalinism doesn't represent those ideas. I think that's a really key contribution he made as well. But I mean, I think he also had many kind of new and interesting ways of framing these kinds of ideas. For example, a term that he began to use in the late 30s, the term transitional demands. I'm wondering, Danny, if you could maybe go into that a bit and explain what he meant when he was using that term, when he was talking about transitional demands. So, yeah.
2: Uh, So the transitional demands, that's a term that comes from a document which is called the transitional programme. And that was something that Trotsky wrote later on in his life in the 1930s. And actually it was a founding document. It was like a founding document for a new organization, which was the fourth international. Now the fourth international was because, you know, after the Russian revolution, um, a very powerful international organization was built called the communist international or the third international. But this process of Stalinist counter revolution that we talked about in Russia of course that then became replicated in all the communist parties around the world and throughout this international. And, you know, so a fourth international was founded under Trotsky's leadership that was going to renew the ideas of genuine Marxism and the Russian revolution and Lenin, etc. So the transitional program, um, it's a very important document and the best way to acquaint yourself with it is to read it. And it's actually a really accessible document and a really interesting document to read um, and it's available online. For free, um, So the, the starting point of the transitional program is and this is really interesting today you know you'll, you'll listen, and it will sound familiar to you is that the whole world situation was kind of like rotten ripe for socialism. There was a devastating crisis of capitalism. There was the 1930s, Great Depression. Um, global capitalism was about to drag the whole of the world into another, you know, even worse, devastating world war. They promised it would never happen again in the Second World War. Um, but at the same time, um, there was a problem in that that objective situation where the capitalism was ripe for being overthrown, in terms of the other side, in terms of the working class, the leadership of the working class, um, you know, that was, that was a, the decisive problem. Because in a sense, in the 1930s, the working class was stronger and more powerful than it had ever been. You know, it was organized in its millions around the world. It had very powerful trade unions. It had an extremely important economic power, but it was led by essentially different types of leaders who were basically essentially committed to the defense of the system. So this contradiction between, you know, the objective, um, you know, rottenness of capitalism but then the absence of a leadership, which was so decisive in the Russian revolution to overthrow capitalism, that was the kind of central starting point for the transitional program. So in terms of like transitional demands, right, the basic idea behind transitional demands was that, of course, you know, in any period, the working class, um, you know, will be fighting primarily in relation to, to the day-to-day problems that they face, the day-to-day issues that they face. Um, and they will not be associating the struggle for those day-to-day problems with the overall task of, you know, transforming society or abolishing capitalism. Um, What Trotsky explained, and this is very relevant today, is that even, you know, um, in the fight for day-to-day reforms that, you know, stop short of revolutionary change, in the situation like there was in the 1930s to really fight for those reforms necessitated also having the broader perspective and necessitated, you know, linking the fight for those reforms today to the struggle to change society to a revolutionary struggle. So what Trotsky meant by transitional demands were demands that connect day to day demands. For example, the demand for a a very generic demand, which for a rise in wages and demand for greater taxation on the wealthy, etc. For those demands to be, for a connection to be made, a transition to be made between those type of demands and then demands which questioned and threatened the whole capitalist system. In essence, socialist demands to transform capitalism, to address who has the wealth and who who controls the wealth in society. And so that was, if you like, the meaning of transitional demands. And that's something that we still see as socialists and you know Trotskyists, if you like, today still see that as fundamental to how we approach politics and our program.
3: Yeah, I think when you were talking I was really like thinking about the situation that we are in today and like like you said it's it's really reminiscent of it. And I think it's 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 a really important point because like as socialists we all believe that you can't even though we can win some victories in, like on the basis of capitalism it doesn't mean that we can actually win everything that wa- the working class needs. And I think it's especially obvious with movements like you know, the, the ones that have recently cropped up, like Black Lives Matter movement, or even like trans rights or anti-sexism, that a lot of t- the times when we go to these protests, we sometimes would hear from people on the protests, why, why are you talking about socialism right now? Like we're talking about this particular issue. And I think the transitional program really, makes it clear why we have to continue talking about socialism why we can't win those victories properly why we can't win the, the the demands without full socialism but obviously we also want to progress as much as we can uh now
2: yeah absolutely and i mean if you look at today for example i mean the working class struggle throughout the years has won many things has won many reforms from capitalism but if you look at it, you know how those reforms fared after they were won, you know. So for example, in Britain we got today the NHS, which is maybe you know the most significant reform that was ever won under capitalism in any country, and you know, universal and what was very high-quality um public health care. But ever since it was won, you know, because it wasn't consolidated by a broader change in society along the lines of the NHS, socialist change, the NHS has like been this island of you know, which gives an example of some elements of socialism which the capitalists have just attacked you know they've consistently attacked they've they've you know they've undermined weakened at every stage and um, so it also shows the limitations of of reforms
1: and, and i think another point that can kind of be tagged onto this as well is i think there's one kind of part in, in the transitional program where Trotsky's is saying something like you know marxists want to kind of place themselves at the forefront of struggles for reforms as well, you know. It's not like he was saying in, the, in, in, this, in this document, the fight for reforms is in of itself, uh, you know, like a waste of time, or we can't achieve anything without the overthrow of, of capitalism. But he was saying, obviously, it has to be tied to it though, otherwise any kind of gain that working-class people make, and any gain that can be made, can be whittled away, uh, you know, kind, kind of tomorrow, um, so long as it benefits the rule and the profits of the capitalist class, you know. And I think that is something that maintains relevance today. And, and I mean, the, the thing is as well, like, if, if you look at some of the things that Trotsky was saying in the transitional programme about the kind of decay of capitalism at the time, but the kind of weaknesses of, you know, the parties of the working class in terms of their leaderships, I think that they're, they're also a case of how Trotsky was this great Marxist thinker, but wasn't beyond um, getting certain things wrong. Because I think overall, obviously, that, that that position is correct. You know, he was talking about how in the 30s, there was this prolonged crisis, um, but no revolutionary party that could give a leadership to, you know, these, these struggles of the working class, struggles particularly of the unemployed. So he said that the conditions were actually overripe for revolution. You know, he almost felt like the time was running out a little bit. But one idea that he put forward uh, in the the transitional program was that this crisis of capitalism would continue after uh, World War II. And I mean, one thing that, you know, he didn't necessarily like foresee was, uh, you know, that kind of prolonged post-war boom that did end up taking place, you know, in the 40s through to the 70s. And obviously the the point to make is Trotsky wasn't alive (laughs) to update his analysis. And it kind of shows that he was a great Marxist revolutionary and also a person who was capable of kind of dropping ideas, taking on new ideas. His ideas evolved um, throughout his life. I'm sure, you know, if, had he not been assassinated in 1940 in such a brutal way as he did then, his ideas would have undergone further evolution. And it's, I guess it's our job to uphold many of the ideas that Trotsky put forward, but also kind of recognize him how they might have to be updated or reframed for now. Um, I mean, another question as well that has was kind of been on my mind a little bit was one kind of essential part of Trotsky's criticism of Stalinism, uh, particularly in the 1930s, was in the approach that Stalinism started to develop towards forming coalitions. There was this Stalinist idea of the popular front Which you know was particularly argued against by Trotsky. Could you explain what the Popular Front was, and whether those debates are still kind of relevant today?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at all Trotsky's thought, right, one of the things that permeates through it all, and one of the one of the kind of threads through all Trotsky's thought is he's very convinced that the capitalist class has got nothing left to offer humanity, Um, that the capitalism its historical mission is totally finished, and there's no such thing as progressive capitalism. And so the working class can't hang its hopes on, on capitalism or on any national capitalist elite, on any faction of, of national or international capitalism. Um, and in that sense, the resolution of the you know, immediate, the burning problems of the working class in any country, they can only be resolved by the working class struggle in a the, in the united way against the capitalist class. And that is the essence of this question of the popular front. Um, Because even though those ideas, they may sound just, you know, like basic anti-capitalist Marxist ideas, they were not. Um, Ultimately, the ideas that were put forward, you know, during the 1930s, for example, by, you know, what we would call Stalinist political organizations or leaders, but also of what we would call reformist, you know, social democratic leaders was often to um, pin the hopes, to try and pin the hopes of the working class um, on one or other section of the capitalist class. Or, to put it better, to give the mistaken impression that the working class could have allies within the capitalist class for its causes and for its struggles. So the idea of the popular front, it was mainly an idea that was discussed in the context of fighting against fascism in Europe in the 1930s. Um, the idea was, which was put forward by Stalinists, by Stalin himself and by the international defenders of um, Stalinism, that in the fight against fascism, the workers' organisations had to do everything possible to build, alliance, build alliances with the so-called democratic capitalists who were against fascism. Um, and this is an idea that Trotsky you know, bitterly opposed. And ultimately, it's actually an idea that paved the way for the victory of fascism and the defeat of the working class. Because Trotsky understood what fascism was. I mean, fascism wasn't a question of a group of bad capitalists against a group of good capitalists. Fascism was actually an ideology and a system of government that the whole of the capitalist class embraced in the countries where it came to power and internationally. I mean, if you look at all the examples Germany, um, but also Italy, Spain etc. Fascism came to power after revolutions, after working class revolutions, which ultimately failed because of the absence of a revolutionary leadership, that Trotsky has explained also in the also in the um in the transitional program, which we talked about. Um, So Trotsky understood that um there was no way that you know an alliance could be built with capitalists to fight against fascism. And because fascism represented the response you know the last ditch response of the capitalist class to prevent working class revolution to prevent socialism in um, in the west so trotsky against the idea of a popular front um which like i said means an alliance between workers and capitalists he put forward the idea of the united front which meant a, a united front a united struggle of all those who really had a stake in the fight against fascism which meant the workers, the youth and the and oppressed peoples. So that meant that workers' organizations of all different types, you know, social democratic types, even Stalinist organizations, as well as real revolutionary Marxist organizations, trade unions, social movements, etc., youth movements, that they should all unite. Um, but that the only effective alternative to ca- to fascism, which was capitalism, fascism was capitalism in decay. It was, it was a particular form of capitalism the only way to effectively oppose it was to link it to a struggle against capitalism in general and for the success of these revolutionary movements, which fascism had arose to defeat. So that necessitated, you know, class independence, if you like, yeah, the independence of the working class. So the whole point of popular front uh, or Trotsky's idea, the United front is basically the idea of, you know, are there capital, are there good capitalists and bad capitalists? Yeah. Um, Trotsky says no, and we agree with him.
3: So I want to ask you about that, because I think it's really interesting because there's always this idea that, you know, Trotsky's don't work with anyone other than their own faction. Um, but I think that's, like, and, and its basis, opposing the ideas of Trotskyism. We just work with the people who are actually there for our interests as well. But I, I wanted to ask about, you know, that there's not, it's not always that clear-cut, you know, if we talk about the Labour Party, for example, in, in Britain, then there's various layers there. Like, Do we, do we work in the Labour Party, even though uh, it's not necessarily always a workers' party in the way that, like, that, that represents working class interests to the full? Or do we just not bother with them?
2: Yeah, so I think the idea, it's a good example in a sense, the idea of the Labour Party, because... I mean, in general, in the Labour Party, sometimes more, sometimes less. But in general, throughout history, there has tended to be people in the Labour Party who represent both classes. Yeah? Um, there's been like a left of the Labour Party, which often is based on, you know, trade unionists and young people, which was the case uh, under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, especially, and also, you know, in previous decades. And then there was a right wing. And the right wing were the out and out representatives of the capitalist class the industrialists yeah um the blairites if you like it didn't start with the blairites but the blairites were the kind of ultimate representatives now obviously that's a very important struggle and whenever there's a struggle between the working class and the capitalist class we support the working class um and what is necessary is for the working class to defeat the capitalist class and within the labor party that would mean the left you know, defeating the right um, and taking control over the party. But what the history of the Labour Party has always demonstrated is that unless that's your objective, you know, unless your objective is to end, if you like, the class struggle within the Labour Party and make it an actual workers' party, yeah, um, and not a party where there's working class and capitalist interests represented. If you don't do that, then it's an, it, it becomes ineffective. Um, it becomes a dead end. So, unfortunately, one of the lessons that we would take from the Corbynism, which we were we absolutely supported, we played a part in, you know, supporting the the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn to fight fighting against Blairite counter-revolution in the Labour Party, including in the last leadership election. One of the lessons is that this attempt to reconcile the interests of capitalists and workers within the Labour Party was a total dead end, and actually was the central reason for the defeat of Corbynism and the Corbyn leadership. We think we, w- we would have, have said and we thought and it, w- it was correct that all the conditions existed within the Labour Party for the working class, those who support the working class, the left, to really impose a defeat on the right wing, to kick all the Blairites out of the party, to make it a 100% workers, democratic workers party with socialist policies. Because that road wasn't taken, then um, we ended up in the situation that we are today.
1: One idea that um, I also got from these points from both Danny and Yara as well were very kind of similar to what I was thinking in terms of how at root the ideas about you know the Popular Front, the ideas of you know the United Front, how they differ from one another. They do have this relevance for uh, the present day because fundamentally they are about the question of. Should the working class organise independently, or is it, uh, you know, permissible from a Marxist standpoint to form these coalitions with one kind of particular section of the ruling class? And you know, we would say in socialist alternative that it's not permissible, not because it's some sort of kind of moral idea, but because you know, the question is, what is going to advance uh, our, our kind of movements? You know, what is going to be able to ensure that our movements won't have any kind of like ruling class forces blocking their kind of advance and I mean one ob- obvious key point is yes the Labour Party um, in, ter- in terms of the fact that you know we were very consistently raising these ideas as Danny pointed out that th- there can be no kind of peaceful coexistence between you know Corbynism and the Blairites because of this key point that you know they represent these diametrically opposed class forces and also I, th- I think it does have this relevance to what's happening in the US as well where uh, there's a certain kind of argument you know that that exists on in certain kind of layers and corners of the us left that that we have to vote for joe biden you know as an alternative to donald trump because he represents this kind of lesser evil and i think i think the the, the problem with that is that it's masking the reality that in the us you know you don't have um, a mass workers party you know you have two parties of big business so the task is you know building you know socialist forces Uh, independent of those two you know kind of capitalist camps and obviously you know the Sanders movement did provide you know a certain uh, opportunity to do that and obviously our our comrades over in the US had a very very clear uh, orientation towards uh, the Sanders movement but unfortunately you know Sanders kind of caved into that logic again of lesser evilism as well so the uh, I I guess the the key thing is to kind of learn the lessons from that and learn the lessons about you know the need for the working class uh, to organize uh, independently. One other key idea that Trotsky put forward was in this theory of uh, of the permanent revolution as well. Uh, That's often kind of uh, cited as the kind of pioneering theory that Trotsky put forward. But, you know, there is also a lot of uh, misunderstandings about what those ideas mean, particularly, you know, Stalinism has had the effect of very much kind of, you know, trying to distort the theory of permanent revolution, turn it into something that it genuinely wasn't to create kind of like a straw man version of the theory uh, in order to, you know, allow themselves to try and knock it down. I'm wondering if you could go into uh, the permanent revolution a little bit, Danny, to kind of clear up what uh, he actually meant by that term.
2: Yeah, this actually follows on well from the popular front question, because it comes down to the same question fundamentally of what progressive role can capitalism play as a system? Um, now, the permanent revolution was something that Trotsky developed at the start, the very start of the twentieth century. And actually it was a very marginal idea for a long time, in the sense that Trotsky put it forward and it wasn't accepted. It wasn't widely accepted for a long time. Even Lenin, you know, who was you know Trotsky, the main co-leader with Trotsky of the Russian Revolution, for a long time was not convinced by Trotsky's idea of the permanent revolution. Um, but I mean it was one of the most Um, incredible things to see how this idea, this kind of outlier of an idea that Trotsky put forward was actually confirmed so dramatically in the Russian Revolution. Um, Basically, the permanent revolution was about is um, what role can capitalism play in the development of nations? Um, So Marx and Engels explained that capitalism Lays the foundations for socialism, and that's absolutely correct. It's capitalism that creates the working class. It's capitalism that creates the industrial, the international economy, which only socialism and only the working class can effectively manage for the benefit of all. Um, So, in that sense, the development of world capitalism was a necessary prerequisite to the development of socialism, and that's absolutely you know fundamental and correct idea of marxism however the question is then how the idea is interpreted on a national level because obviously as capitalism developed it developed unevenly across the world in different countries some countries developed you know um, very advanced capitalist societies um, with heavily industrialized societies where capitalist parliamentary democracy existed and became consolidated etc so for example, England, Britain, Germany, and so on. But then the rest of the world, a big part of the world, did not develop along those lines. Yeah? Parts of the world which were maybe colonial parts of the world, the global south, etc. they had a much slower rate of development. They didn't all develop in an advanced capitalist way. So for a while, um, at the end of the 19th century, at the beginning of the 20th century, if you like the dominant kind of orthodox idea, among Marxists was that in those backward countries, if you like, by backward, I mean the less developed capitalist countries. For those backward countries, what you needed before socialism could be developed was you needed another phase of development, of capitalist development. So for example, Russia, which was, you know, the case study at the time, the idea that before Russia could be a socialist country or could have a socialist government, it was necessary for Russia to pass through a phase of capitalist development. And so, yeah, where a democratic regime was established, where the forces of production, the methods and means of production were modernized. And then only after a period of that type could socialism be contemplated. Now, Trotsky, like I said, that was the, that was an orthodox position in, in world Marxism at the time. And it was something that Trotsky, you know, defied. Yeah. He, he, He opposed that. He challenged that conception. And he did so on the basis that, first of all, it was true that capitalism was a necessary prerequisite to socialism, but also that capitalism had already developed on a world scale and had reached its limit in terms of its development. And also that as part of that development, there was an international division of labour, if you like. There was an international division between advanced countries and underdeveloped, underdeveloped countries. Um, and that was an equilibrium that was fundamental to capitalism. Um, so for example, this meant that the capitalist elite, you know, the local capitalists, the local oligarchs, in you know more backward countries, less developed countries, they were inherently incapable of carrying out in their countries the capitalist revolution in the same way that had been done in the advanced capitalist countries and um, because those local oligarchies those local elites had developed not as independent you know strong uh, revolutionary if you like capitalist elites as had been the case in the west previously but they developed as subordinates they developed as vassal um classes to international and to world imperialism so those oligarchies and those elites those ruling classes were incapable of playing the role in the development of you know their own countries that the capitalist class had played in the development of for example england france etc so what did that mean so trotsky said that that meant that in those backward countries um, it would be necessary for the working class uh, to lead a struggle in which those countries would, if you like, skip a stage of development. Um, and that the working class and the oppressed would, by carrying out a revolution, revolutionary change, they would resolve in one fell swoop, um, the problems of the capitalist underdevelopment of those countries, but also at the same time, a socialist, carry out a socialist revolution. Um, and that that would be resolved fundamentally, and the backwardness of those countries would be resolved fundamentally by the spread of revolution internationally so in the case of russia the working class could take power in backward russia but in order to consolidate and establish socialism it was necessary for russia to be joined up with the advanced capitalist countries so especially germany france britain etc so that was the essence of the the essence of the the idea of the permanent revolution and it was actually a very important idea because whether you agreed with it or not was fundamental to what you thought were the tasks of the revolutionaries in Russia. I mean, was the task of the revolutionaries in Russia to assist the Russian capitalists in modernizing Russia or was it to organize the working class to overthrow Russian capitalism? Very important difference. Um, and then you saw in the Russian revolution um, the idea of the permanent revolution be completely borne out.
3: Yeah, and I think I think it's 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 really relevant to today as well, because obviously in the nineteen thirties and nineteen tens and early nineteen early twentieth century generally, that there was a level of globalization, but I think the 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 ability to see how global the world was, but also how global it's gonna become, because now we live in a world that's basically almost completely global and the working class is global but also the ruling class is global you know we see migration of wealth constant like constant migration of wealth we see um corporations and capitalists move from country to from one country to another and we also see those satellite states that you talked about on a, a much bigger scale because maybe they're no longer under the direct rule of um uh, european empires but they are still heavily um, ruled by the capital of those countries and the con- corporations that come from those countries. So I think, do, do you think that the permanent revolution idea is relevant to today's like, neo-colonial world as well as the colonial world at the time?
2: Absolutely, it's relevant. I think it's relevant all over the world, the basic idea. I mean, if you look at how many countries around the world have still not achieved you know, the basics of... "Quote unquote capitalist modernity or normality, um, or democracy. How many you know nations have still not achieved national independence? National peoples have still not achieved national independence. How many countries have still not achieved even the limited capitalist democracy? And how many you know instances have there been of the the failure of the national capitalist elites in countries like?" To achieve these things, to, to accomplish these tasks, to achieve these rights, um, for their people. So, I think that the the necessity of achieving those things via the socialist transformation of society has never been, has never been clearer. Um, but also I think in the in the even in the advanced you know the capitalist countries, even in the West, I mean we've seen movements. Well, we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement, the feminist movement, movements that are actually directed at feudal, you know, or even like pre-capitalist remnants that linger on, you know, even in the most advanced capitalist countries in the world, you know, the biggest capitalist country in the world, the United States, the most modern country in the world, still relics of slavery and feudalism, which capitalism has shown it's not capable of stamping out. So those things can only be stamped out on the basis of, um, on the basis of socialist revolution.
1: Another point as well uh, about this is that When, for example, I first heard the term permanent revolution, I wasn't, you know, considering myself a Trotskyist at this point. Uh, You know, I just just had, you know, kind of like an interest in these ideas. People were kind of telling me that the theory was that Trotsky thought that the revolution would have to be permanent and that it would have to spread uh, around the world, that it would have to be, you know, an international socialist transformation. And, you know, it was a theory put forward, uh, in contrast to the Stalinist theory of, of socialism in one country. And of course, you know, he did argue those things and he did put those, uh, you know, he did, he did put those ideas forward and he argued against socialism in one country, definitely. But I think like what you've gone into very well there, Danny, is for one that, you know, this was a theory that predated all those ideas and it was kind of an unorthodox idea. It was arguing something on top of that point about the need for, you know, a global revolution, because that those ideas about, you know, the need for socialist revolutions to spread around the world in order for socialism uh, to to you know to, to be successful and to consolidate itself, those ideas were weren't a fringe idea. You know, they were just the accepted orthodox idea among Marxists as a whole. Even Stalin himself, who came out and tried to revise that idea, tried to, you know, wipe that idea out it Was a reflection of his, you know, rejection of, uh, you know, work, workers' rule over society more than anything. Even Stalin, before he did that, would have to pay lip service to talking about the need for global revolution. And I think that is also like a, a key thing to uh, in, incorporate into these discussions about permanent revolution as well. You know, how when, when Trotsky was talking about the need for a focus on internationalism, he wasn't necessarily developing a new idea; he was defending an existing idea against those forces who wanted to drop it. And I guess that leads me on to the the last question that uh, I sort of want to want to ask here. I mean, many listeners, you know, will probably know by now that this podcast is produced by Socialist Alternative. You know, we're part of International Socialist Alternative, this collection of Trotskyist organisations in uh, in thirty o- uh, countries across the globe. For one, uh, Danny, how how do you think that these ideas of internationalism, the ideas of Trotskyism, kind of inform uh, you know how how we work as an international, and how do you think ultimately they're relevant uh, to the world today?
2: Absolutely, really important question. I mean, I think that you know, um, in a sense, Trotskyism, which is you know, it's not a distinct idea from Marxism. It's like the you know the modern manifestation of what Marxism is. Um, it's a very old idea. Yeah, very old movement, not old in the long view of history, but it's old, you know, for for us today, hundreds of years old. Um, the, it's a very old movement, um, which has been a long time, you know, pursuing a goal, um, without ultimately achieving it. I think that today, you know, that is an idea that despite being old has never been more relevant. It's never been a more contemporary idea. Um, and I think the aspect of it that you highlighted internationalism is, you know, that's especially the case. I think that the movements of young people, of workers, of women, all oppressed people around the world, they're instinctively internationalist and they're increasingly internationalist, not just in their form, you know, not just that it starts in one country and spreads around the world very quickly, which is increasingly happening, um, but also in their outlook of those who participate, um, People understand that global solutions are necessary. I mean, the most obvious example is the climate, the climate revolt, which spread around the world. Uh, it's a problem which has an obvious international solution, um, no national solution, because ultimately everybody lives in the same planet. Um, but also the necessity, the, the understanding of the need to struggle together internationally and for an international alternative, um, and that's a fundamental idea of Trotskyism. And we, for example, an international socialist alternative um we're uniquely positioned to be able to to be able to give an expression to that genuine Trotskyism, which we think we represent. Genuine Trotskyism is the only the only type of political movement which is genuinely internationalist, which is not just, you know, rep- like a club of national parties getting together once in a while to, you know, discuss common initiatives. Um, A Trotskyist organization is a world organization, um, and the starting point is to be a world party, which is then organized into national sections, national branches. So in a sense, the increasing internationalism of workers and of young people and of the struggles and movements around the world, um, it means that Trotskyism is actually more than ever a very relevant idea for the 2020s.
3: Yeah, and I think I think the idea of you know not having loads of different organizations that have a roof that is international is is extremely important, especially in a world that like like we just discussed is a world that is beyond those boundaries when it comes to capital, when it comes to the ruling class. Uh, like, so the only way for the working class to organize against it is to organize on an international, truly international basis. And I think that it also. It also like kind of begs the question of if if that's the Trotskyist approach, does that mean that we don't see any differences between countries? Does it mean that we believe that every single uh, country has the same kind of working class with the same uh, the same things that they need to approach, or do we see it as a more complex kind of analysis of a world organization?
2: No, I think definitely. You have to appreciate the national peculiarities and complexities, and not just national, but also regional, local, etc. I mean, to be a real working-class organization, you need to be in tune with working-class reality, and um, it's not enough just to talk about global revolution. Um, in response to every local or national problem, you have to understand. You have to make the effort to understand the situation on the ground, the detail of the situation on the ground. That's why. A Trotskyist organization needs to have membership. It needs to have membership of workers, young people, oppressed people, um, who are really involved and be a democratic party so that the reality of life on the ground permeates through the politics of the organization. That's fundamental to, to why a party, why a revolutionary party organization, mass organization ultimately, needs to be built. But at the same time, it goes both ways because on the one hand, I mean today it's actually impossible if you look at any country around the world the main pol- political themes the main political uh, process is taking place in a country it's impossible to understand them from a purely national standpoint i mean obviously the most glaring example of that is the global pandemic where the you know the 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 secrets in the name but also economic developments in every country they start from the, world, the reality of the world economy um, in most countries, the most important protests and movements taking place, like I've mentioned, Black Lives Matter movement, before that, the climate change movement, and the climate strikes movement, etc., they arise from global processes of political development, radicalization. You'll also find that even the ugliest of political phenomena, you know, um, it's no coincidence that we've seen Trump, Bolsonaro, Boris Johnson, Duterte, etc., all arise at the same time around the world because they're part of a global political phenomenon. So, I mean, it's really important, you know, socialists and Trotskyists are, you know, the most um, active in their local area, the most active in their national, in their country and on the issues that matter and to give responses to the issues that matter. But, you know, having the benefit of a world political viewpoint, but not just a world political viewpoint, having the benefit of a world political organization, you know, in our case, having comrades in more than 30 countries around the world, in every continent in the world, having the benefit of that actually allows you to engage with your local and national reality on a much higher level than would be the case if you were just an isolated local and national grouplet.
3: Thank you, Danny. I think this was a really, really interesting episode and a really good way to end on it. So I uh, I just want to mention that if you've heard this podcast and you agreed with it, and you want to take action then we will be really happy if you joined us. We will link our international pages and our national pages in the description for this podcast, so you can just link on them, uh, uh, click on the links, and uh, uh, sign up. I'll also want to mention, because we were talking about internationalism, that uh, our international organisation, uh, the International Socialist Alternative, have a weekly rally on Facebook and YouTube, live on Sundays. That you should be uh, that should be really interesting for. For everyone to watch uh, about kind of like current affairs in different countries around the world with this internationalist perspective with this Trotskyist analysis that can be really useful especially in the period that we live in today and of course uh, the last thing that I want to mention is uh, that this podcast is a monthly podcast so the ne- uh, next month we will also have an episode so just uh subscribe to this podcast, uh, subscribe to our channels so you'll get notified when our next podcast is live. And thank you, Danny, and thank you, Tom. It's been great talking to you.
0: Thanks to Tom, Yara, and Danny for that very informative discussion. As you may be aware, Socialist Alternative is not just a discussion circle. We play an active role in building struggles and movements from Black Lives Matter to workers organising under COVID-19, to building the fight for trans rights. If you liked what you heard in this episode and are interested in hearing more of what we have to say, please don't hesitate to go to our social media pages. The links will be in the description. And our website, which is www.socialistalternative.net. Make sure to like this podcast, to subscribe to our channel, and share the podcast with your friends and workmates. We hope to see you next time. Thanks.